Welcome to A Barrel of Oranges, the podcast where history and pop culture collide. I'm your historian and host, Kim Sherman, and I'm joined by my sister and our literature and film geek, Pam Sherman. Hello, everyone. And we're finally back, y'all. Yay. This episode has been like, I don't know, days in the making. Like we, we have been trying to record this episode all week long. So we are finally here. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a hell of a week. Um, we literally were ready to record this three days ago. It is Friday, January 12th. So if you know what (laughs) happened three days ago, you know why we decided it, we needed a few days. We needed a, a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of time to soak things in. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, this is our first episode of 2024. It's our first episode of A Barrel of Oranges since the airing of season two of Our Flag Means Death. So we have, uh, you know, lots to dive into. We've got some fun stuff planned for the next little bit. And we're certainly going to keep on uh, trucking along with the podcast because we know that you all have some uh, still have a lot of love for this show, uh, for Our Flag Means Death, and we want to continue, uh, yeah, just celebrating that and celebrating uh, all the cool things that have come out of that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, for, for anyone that maybe is not, like, engaged with the kind of community around Our Flag Means Death, um, we found out this week that it has not been renewed by Max for season three. Um, which was really kind of a rug pull for everyone, I think, um, yeah. including those involved in the show. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's been a week. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like everything that was building up over the past couple of weeks felt really confident, you know, in the idea of getting a renewal and, uh, yeah, to have that completely pulled out from underneath us on Tuesday was a shock for everyone involved. So, you know, I think, out of that, we're seeing people pull together and, you know, kind of have a little bit of grieving time together, but also um, realizing that this fandom is not going down without a fight. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. There's some cool initiatives <laughs> going on. My favorite little mantra the past couple of days is the ship isn't going down without a fight. Yes. And I fully believe it. Um, there's a great initiative out there called Renew as a Crew. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on like Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, check that out. They have a change.org um, petition that they've had going since season two was actually yeah. airing mm-hmm. um, to get it renewed for a third season. And they're really pushing for... Uh, more support and that kind of thing. So be sure to check that out if you want to support um, our efforts to get season three either renewed at max or picked up by another streaming service. So yeah, the more, the more noise we can make, the better. Absolutely. And you know, like you never want to underestimate a ragtag group of pirates. And I think <laughs> that's the same for this fandom. Um, you know, pirates were able to bring entire empires to their knees And, uh, you know, this fandom just might be doing the same. So uh, (laughs) I think we can uh, definitely (laughs) see um, the love for the show is not going to end anytime soon. So we want to be here and be a support for all of that for the creators and everybody involved. And yeah, just keep enjoying uh, all the different facets of stuff that that has brought to our lives. And, you know, for both me and Pam, it's been a a piece of media, a piece of art that has meant so much to us personally. Um, and it's allowed us to kind of delve into parts of ourselves that we 
you know, never had really thought of that much before. And yeah, to be able to take that and weave that into our own special interest of history and literature and, you know, the fact that we both are film geeks and everything, you know, that makes it even more fun to do podcasts like this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So as we were contemplating over the past few weeks about where we wanted to start with the podcast in 2024, we were like, we've got this huge list of topics and themes that came out of season two of OFMD and out of even some stuff that connects back into season one that we're going to be diving into. Um, and I keep, I keep using that like phrase diving into, and I feel like it's just the worst pun ever when you talk about like maritime (laughs) stuff, but that's just me. I pick pick a phrase and I stick to it. We like pirate (laughs) puns. This is, totally the perfect, unintentional. this is the perfect place for pirate puns. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So <laughs> anyways, we have a huge list of topics and themes and we were like, where do we want to start? And we decided that we would begin with one of this season's with season two of OFMD's main antagonists. And that is drum roll, please. <laughs> Ned Ludlow. <laughs> Pirates, ye be warned. There be spoilers ahead. <laughs> Ned Lowe, Edward Lowe, however you want to call him. This is probably history's most sadistic, nasty brute of a pirate when you stack him up compared to anybody else, compared to Blackbeard, compared to Hornigold, Vane, Rackham, anybody. This guy this is, is a nightmare. This is, this is one bad motherfucker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think that the more we kept reading about him, we were just like, oh my God. I mean. It's insane. I, you know, I don't want to use the word insanity lightly um, mm. because that can be triggering. But this guy, there was something wrong with this guy. (laughs) Um, Something very disturbed. (laughs) So you're going to find out a little bit more about that as we go along. Obviously, his portrayal in OFMD is pretty unhinged. Um, Mm -hmm. But I thought I'd start us off, like, as we kind of get into this, there's a quote from historian Peter Earle that I think is is a good place to start out with this. And, And Earle says that the man with the worst reputation of all among the pirates was Ned Lowe who was described by one of his own officers as notorious for his cruelty, a greater monster never infested the seas. I love that. (laughs) For another pirate to say that their pirate captain is a monster, that's Mm -hmm. a pretty big deal. Yeah. It's like a level of depravity that, you know, is, I guess, uh, even unknown in that culture <laughs> yeah in I mean, some considering ways. that pirate culture from what we've talked about in past episodes of this podcast and as we'll continue to talk about in the near future you know piracy was actually something that was often an out from the depravity of merchant captains and the royal navy and some of the the horrid punishments and things that people experienced in those different genres of maritime life and you know for these pirate captains to this guy to go that far was, was a pretty big deal. So we encounter Ned Lowe as a character in Our Flag Means Death in episode six. Yes. Tell Calypso's us a little bit more birthday. about, like, let's talk a little bit about how we, we are introduced to yeah. Mr. Lowe. 
Well, you know, unbeknownst to us, most of us, I think, unless you saw, like, uh, I think uh, a photo was posted at some point that kind of gave it away way beforehand. But um, we get our first little look at Nedlow when uh, Ed and Steed and the crew go on land to shop for their Calypso's birthday party. Um, Nedlow is busking um, in the little town that they're in, and Ed even gives him a tip. Um, for his playing. Um, but then, yeah, we, we get uh, Lowe and his crew um, on board the Revenge, and they, they take control, and they decide they're going to torture Ed and Steed and the crew. So. Yeah. And, I mean, even before that, we've got that little kind of intro scene to the episode. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We see Lowe kind of interacting with the crew, at least, with the Revenge yeah. crew. Yeah. But earlier in the episode, kind of the beginning of that, we have this scene in what's supposed to be a lighthouse, it looks like. Lowe is torturing an individual. I'm guessing it is the editor of this newspaper in which the the claim has been made that Blackbeard has surpassed Ned Lowe's record of how many ships he has captured in a year or something like that. And this has incensed Lowe and he's like demanding more information. So this is the impetus for why he is tracking down the revenge. Yeah. Episode six, we've got this fabulous party taking place and this motherfucker rocks up. And the thing that I am most mad about is that he ultimately keeps us from seeing Ed and Steve dancing. So... I go. remember when we watched this episode for the first time and we saw them getting ready to dance and we were losing our minds I know. <laughs> and they get like, interrupted. Oh my God, it's happening. The moment it could have been, man. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they get that completely interrupted. This beautiful scene is interrupted and here he comes and, you know, he's just a little bitch, really. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I just can't stand him. I mean, he's really just kind of like... I don't know. He rocks up and he's like, oh, I'm better than you and everything. And then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And this like whole obsession with his brother, who was like a prodigy, which I think yeah. we should talk about that a little bit yes. more with like the, the real, real Ned Lowe as well, because there's like a whole thing with that as yes. well. But honestly, it's um, hilarious. yeah, just this whole obsession with like, oh, my brother was more talented than me and I feel inadequate. So I'm going to like you know, be the greatest pirate captain ever. And this guy's <laughs> fucked up my record now. So I need to kill these bitches. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like, I know. I know. You can just, it's like so petty in a way. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's but it's great. like perfect. It's like, yeah. it's almost like, especially for an OFMD villain, it's very kind of almost like, I don't know if it's like the right term, but almost like caricature. Yeah. I was going to say some ways. or caricature. Yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it works really, really well. And, you know, I think it could have worked really well if he had just, like, been the main villain yeah. for the entire season. Um, yeah. We've talked about this a little bit before as well. But, um, yeah, he was a lot of fun. Like, yeah. he left me kind of wanting more, even though he yeah. he was, like, a bitch the entire yeah. time. <laughs> I know. I would love to see more with him in the future. But, you know, that's something that, you know, I think the best choices were made in that situation. And we have other antagonists to deal with as well. So we'll be getting yep. more you know, in depth on those in future. Let's talk a little bit about where this guy comes from, because there's a bit of mystery, a little mm -hmm. bit of mystery about where he comes from. Yeah. Um, I think that's true for like 
yeah. literally anyone in pirate history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think about it. <laughs> Most of these guys, they come from lower class backgrounds, maybe from you know maritime trades or from the navy but mostly from lower classes that you just we just don't have the best records for yeah that group of people they're not always literate they're not always going to have a paper trail like we do for people of the upper class like people like steve bonnet for example so yeah so it's supposed that he was born sometime around 1690 in westminster in london so he's another english guy and as a young kid he pretty much starts out his life as a thief. I mean, that is like from day one, pretty much what yeah. he is up to. Um, according to one biographer, and this is a guy named Charles Elms who published a book in 1837 in Maine called the pirate's own book. And just as a little side note here, if any of you have listened to some of our earlier episodes and we've talked about captain Charles Johnson and the general history of the pirates, this is kind of like the 19th century version of that. Mm. Um, it's, heavily based on myth and tons of like secondhand stories. And, and a lot of this of course is like it's published nearly a century after these guys were active. So we have to take it all with a grain of salt, but this is what he says. He says this ferocious villain was born in Westminster and received an education similar to that of the common people in England. He was by nature a pirate for even when very young, he raised contributions among the boys of Westminster and if they declined compliance, a battle was the result. So it sounds like <laughs> maybe he like forced other kids to like, I don't know, give him money and stuff like that. And then if they didn't give them, it kind of like beating them up for their lunch money in a way is what yeah. it sounds like. Basically he was a bully. Yes, exactly. Which kind of makes sense. Yeah. But we were also doing some reading and found out a little bit that this wasn't just like his kind of, um, uh, I guess his occupation as a kid that he also had a brother who mm -hmm. was evidently fairly short and small in stature. And he had a, do you want to talk about this? Like the whole what, thing. Was, it was this so something funny. like he like kept him in a basket or something? So like imagine one of those baskets <laughs> that literally had straps on it that you could yeah. wear like a backpack. So yeah. like the brother would jump into the basket and hide <laughs> in it and they'd be walking along and the brother would just reach out and like snatch people's pick hats off and like pickpocket. And I, my favorite is that he would snatch wigs off of people's heads. <laughs> and I'm like, that was yeah, because wigs were expensive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were expensive. They were usually tailor made and everything. And I can just, I mean, his brother was a wig snatcher. I just love that that idea that that's what him yeah. he got up to in his so maybe the time. maybe the real life ned Lowe was jealous that his brother was a better pickpocket than he was maybe you know yeah <laughs> who knows so sometime from there we don't know it, again exactly when but sometime around 1710 so that would put Lowe at around the age of 20 he ends up in boston massachusetts and he begins working as a rigger uh, in the local shipyard there. And that's pretty dangerous work. Uh, it would have mm -hmm. been basically what some called working up in the tops. So lots of, you know, running up and down of, of ropes and rope ladders and kind of working up in the tops of the, the masts of the ships and the, the sails and the rigging and everything. And there was always a possibility for falls and other types of mishaps. So that's what he's been doing for a little while. And then in 1714, he actually ends up marrying a young woman named Eliza Marble. They get married in 1714 at the local church. He supposedly um, is going to join the local church as well. But it's not like it's 
he's it's not like he's on the straight and narrow from here on so yeah <laughs> things really start to to get tumultuous especially when they experience some loss in the family now i kind of looked into the marbles a little bit and i tried to get a little bit more information on who they were in boston but I, without a lot more time on my hands, like I wasn't able to pull up anything big other than there are still people with that surname in Boston today. And also some, some other names, uh, some other versions of Lowe uh, that would have been around that same time period as well. So maybe he had family already in Boston that he was able to connect with, or maybe mm-hmm. there are people that, you know, are kind of related in some way, shape or form. I don't know. But their first child was a son and he died in infancy. Unfortunately, that was not an uncommon thing at this time period. And a little while later, they also had a daughter. Her name was Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was born in 1719. But it was a really difficult childbirth for Eliza. And unfortunately, Eliza died from those complications. And this plunged low into just an extreme heartbreak. It sounds like he had a really hard time. Reminds me a lot, actually, of some of what we saw with Steve Bonnet after the loss of some of his children uh, back in Barbados. Yeah, definitely. Sometime between 1719 and 1721, we don't know exactly what happens, but Lowe ends up leaving his job as a rigger. Uh, He might have been fired. He might have left his job. There's just not enough information to know exactly what happened. But in 1721, he actually decides to leave his toddler daughter behind. Elizabeth Lowe is left behind in the hands of her marble relatives. And he leaves Boston and sails to Honduras. And you might be thinking, why Honduras? What's the connection here? And and this is specifically because there was a very large trade in logwood between Honduras, Bay of Honduras and Brazil, all the way up to Boston. And we'll talk more about that in, more, in a moment. I tried to do a little bit of digging too to find out what happened to Elizabeth Lowe, um, the toddler. And again, other than knowing that she was left with some of uh, her mother's family, I wasn't really able to pinpoint you know, what happened to her if she survives into adulthood. Again, it probably would take some more genealogy work to do that. So what ends up happening from here is that Ned Lowe and a 12-man crew head for Bay of Honduras, and they've been working with this logwood cutting ship. Uh, They would go on shore, cut uh, what we call a cord of logwood, which would be like, you know, a stack of logwood that you would be able to easily move back and forth. And they had been loading that onto the larger vessel that would be heading back to Boston. And at one point in time during this, they had kind of partially loaded the ship with logwood and... It had to have been a pretty arduous task, I would think, to do this because you're hauling around, you know, and and chopping wood and all this kind of stuff. And he asked the captain of the ship for permission to come aboard with his men, eat a meal and kind of, you know, get, I guess, you know, kind of revived and, and get a bit of a break and then to go back out and keep working. The captain was kind of a hard ass and he refused Lowe and his crew from having a break, basically said, you're going to go back out there, get the job done. Here's a bottle of rum for you all to pass around and share in the meantime, and then you can come back on board later. And I think part of the reasoning for this is that the captain knew that this was an area where the Spanish Garda Costa, basically their coast guard, was often patrolling and it would not have been good for them to be caught by the Spanish Garda Costa, (laughs) uh, you know, harvesting logwood. So he's like, we got to get this job done. Get out of here quick. 
And that's probably why he pushed Lowe and his crew to, you know, work a little bit faster. But this was really kind of a breaking point for him. And it, it might have been, too, that this was already something kind of in the works, that Lowe was just looking for a reason uh, to potentially break with this guy. But he was absolutely pissed off by this. And he actually fires a musket at the captain of the ship. He misses the captain and fatally wounds another man in the process of this. And he and his 12-man crew flee from the logwood cutting ship uh, into the woods, essentially, it seems. And this creates a break with them. One of the men, actually, that was a part of this was Francis Farrington Spriggs, who later on becomes a rather notorious pirate captain as well. So you kind of have a group that's pretty much going to be set on piracy in the next little bit. I'll also note, you know, again, trying to think about the context of why Lowe would have chosen to go down to the Bay of Honduras, which is basically around the present-day area of Belize, why he would have chosen to go down there to engage in the logwood trade. Why was this important to Boston? You know, what's the deal here? Basically, logwood is a type of dye wood. So it was harvested along, it grew along these rivers and, and kind of feeding streams and so forth along the Bay of Honduras. And there were lots of trade connections with Boston for this particular item. And the dye itself, um, basically, it had a very dark, like, center in the wood. And it was really, really rich in color. And if you put that, basically, just a piece of that wood in water, the water would turn blood red. And Ooh. it could be used, of course, then to dye fabric for clothing and all sorts of stuff. And one thing I found out, actually, as I was doing some work last semester, one of my students in my piracy class was actually asking a bit about dyes and so forth for cloth for making flags. We were talking about pirate mm. flags. They were like, you know, was it expensive to make a black flag? Was it expensive to make like the red no quarter flag? All that kind of stuff. And red was actually a very expensive color to dye with, like much like um, blue as well. You know, indigo, we're going to talk about indigo at some point yeah. in time. Red was a very expensive color. A lot of dye especially like a steadfast dye was from an actual insect called the cochineal, which came out of Mexico. And supposedly this item was the most expensive and like, I don't know, one of the most uh, valued items to come out of the Mexico trade during the colonial era, even more so than gold and silver and that kind of stuff, which is pretty hmm. significant. But so I guess yeah. if you've got something like logwood that can produce a really vibrant red dye um, because it initially it's kind of a purplish red color, then that can be a really good trade to have. So there were these connections with Boston. There's even uh, evidence of this in the old North church in Boston. There's a pew near the front of the church that has a placard on it that says for the gentlemen of the Bay of Honduras, uh, who actually donated logwood to the church in 1727 to help basically keep it afloat and that sort of thing. They could sell off the logwood and get money for the church. Um, so there's lots of money made from the re-export trade of logwood out of places like Boston and even Newport, Rhode Island. And one historian named Gregory Fleming actually said that while the logwood cutters, also known as baymen, were sometimes described as rude, drunken rogues, um, they were basically barely a step removed from pirates. So there's a, a big <laughs> a big connection between these two things. Yeah. All right. So back to Lowe and his men. They 
possibly might have already been thinking about mutinying at some point in time, and they were just looking for an opportunity. So now they have chosen a life of piracy, and they commandeer a vessel on the very next day and head for the Cayman Islands at the end of 1721. Here's when he also joins forces with another new pirate named George Lothar, uh, who had also recently mutinied. He had mutinied aboard a British Royal African Company vessel, which is a slaving vessel off of Gambia. This was actually very common, as we've talked about before. Mutinies often occurred on these vessels uh, that were involved in the slave trade. And he had sailed to the Caribbean on board a ship called the Happy Delivery. These <laughs> <laughs> ship names, man, sometimes. I swear. They're, they're just too euphemistic in a way. Happy yeah. Delivery. So um, with Lothar, Lowe and his men begin plundering around the Caribbean. Lowe basically serves as Lothar's lieutenant, uh, kind of you know second in command. And for five months, they capture vessels around the Bay of Honduras, many of which were actually sailing from Boston down there to get Lockwood. Yeah. Oftentimes, they would burn them and their cargoes and then torture their crews. So, <laughs> oof. Didn't even try to take the logwood and, like, sell it, you know? Yeah, they're it's just crazy. like, who gives a shit? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. One of the um, early captures that they have is actually off of Virginia. They end up heading up kind of the eastern coastline of North America, and they capture a ship called the Rebecca, which is a brigantine out of Charlestown, Massachusetts. This is in May of 1722. And this becomes kind of a point where Lothar and Lowe end up splitting up. Uh, Lowe will take control of the, cap the captaincy of the Rebecca. It was a moderate, you know, sized vessel. It's not overly uh, armed. It has two cannon and four swivel guns on board. And the pirate crew that had grown to nearly 100 under Lothar and Lowe's leadership was split in half between the two vessels. And um, the original kind of like merchant crew on board the Rebecca were just sent off on another vessel. And this is where Lothar and Lowe part ways. And Lowe is now going to be heading into making his own name as a pirate. There is another incident off of Massachusetts in June of 1722 that I find really fascinating because it also brings in to the picture some other uh, names that, especially in American history, you might be familiar with, uh, the Franklins. And we'll talk more about how that happens here <laughs> shortly. June of 1722, Lowe captures a ship and stabs up the captain of that ship. His name was Captain James Cahoon of Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, after that happened and the news kind of got out from all of this, a posse of volunteers leaves Rhode Island to try to hunt down Lowe. And even the governor of Massachusetts supposedly sent out an armed sloop to help join in on the search and to bring this guy down. So it's interesting that like, you know, here he is prowling off the coast of New England and that's where he kind of had been from for a bit. Um, you know, here he is kind of in his old stomping grounds. But where <laughs> is the Franklin connection here? So the Boston newspaper, the New England Courant, is edited by James Franklin. James Franklin is the older brother a Benjamin Franklin. And there's like 12 Franklin kids, so and Benjamin <laughs> was the baby. Benjamin Franklin had actually been the apprentice to his older brother who had this uh, paper. Um, and he was like in his early to mid-teens at this point in time. This is before he runs away to Philadelphia. So Franklin is working, Benjamin Franklin is working for his older brother. James publishes news of this search for Lowe. 
Um, but the New England Courant kind of already had a bit of a satirical flair to it. It was also very anti-establishment and kind of anti-government in a way. And basically the way he writes about it is it makes the government look rather incompetent in their search for Lowe, <laughs> if not actually in league with the pirates themselves. And so what happens is the Massachusetts general court actually calls up Franklin and they're like, you have to answer for what you've said. And they put him forth for questioning and they actually imprison him for an entire month. And during so this kind of like libel, libel, yeah, kind of like thinking yeah. it's kind of like sedition, you know, he's talking yeah. about the government. This is also just to, again, too many details here. This is about 15, eh, a little bit more than that, maybe 18 years. I think I'm trying to do my math. No, 1734, I think it is. Uh, that is the very important, um, oh goodness, my, my teaching brain is switching off. Um, very important New York case with a German American newspaper editor and, oh God, it's completely gone. Anyway, I can't even, I can't even dig you out of the hole. I have no idea what the case is called. (laughs) Well, I, I kind of know what you're talking about. The but. governor of New York's name was William Cosby. And this guy had um, John Peter Zinger. There we go. <laughs> I knew it would come along somewhere in here. John Peter Zinger. Uh, he's a German newspaper editor. And he had said some things against the, the governor in New York. And so that in 1734 actually helped establish ideas in the American colonies about um freedom of the press and freedom of speech and that kind of thing kind of help ensconce those into, you know, American life and that sort of thing. So this is before all that really takes place. So James Franklin does not get off easy. He's in prison for an entire month. And this actually means that about a 15 year old Benjamin Franklin is taking care of running the entire Uh newspaper (laughs) in Boston. I mean, he was really, really kind of a savant in that matter, but it's kind of funny that it like, here's this piracy issue And that's what actually gives Benjamin Franklin this opportunity to kind of like run a newspaper for himself. And maybe he kind (laughs) of likes that. All thanks to Ned Lowe. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he kind of likes that because when he's 17, he runs away from his brother and the apprenticeship and heads to Philadelphia and begins his own printing business. So who knows? (laughs) Maybe be able to thank a pirate for that one. So Lowe continues just plundering up and down the New England coast, completely unaware that there is this threat out there trying to hunt him down. They capture a whaling sloop off of Martha's Vineyard. And this was one of the first instances that I found of him being just absolutely unhinged in just the brutality that he had towards people who actually joined his own pirate crew. So um, after taking this whaling sloop, he forced some of the men on board to join the crew of pirates. And that included at least four men who were from the Wampanoag tribe, uh, which is largely in that kind of Eastern Massachusetts area. And only two days later, supposedly Lowe had two of those Wampanoag men beaten, hanged and decapitated with no apparent reasoning behind this. We have no idea why he just suddenly goes off and does this. I mean, from the evidence I've seen, I don't think he ever had to have a reason to do it. That's why like, he's so you know, for lack of a better word, crazy. Like, yeah, to, I mean, to think about. completely unhinged. And so 
A diary, actually, of a minister in the area, Reverend William Holmes, actually noted that a sea captain who was sailing in the vicinity found, quote, the dead body of a man floating upon the water with his head cut off and his hands and feet bound, um, supposedly one of these victims. And it was just really atrocious to think about that. So from here, Lowe and the Rebecca sail further northward uh, towards Shelburne, Nova Scotia. So they're like really heading far out uh, when it comes to kind of the realm of piracy at this point. And they enter the harbor at Pro- Port Roseway, and it's an area where you have tons of fishing vessels, and they kind of come in and kind of try to blend in with what's going on. You know, we're just like everybody else and try to pretend that they are also a fishing vessel. And this is when he begins raiding some of these other ships. <laughs> so he first sends some men over in just a little dinghy of some sort to take a ship called the Milton. And the Milton was captained by Philip Ashton. We've got to say a little thank you to Philip Ashton because he yeah. writes about his experiences with Lowe and Pam's going to be reading some of those here shortly. Yeah. I mean, they're just gold, man. As a primary source, s- yeah. Such a way with words, man. <laughs> <laughs> so these four pirates approached the Milton, and Ashton actually thought that they were kind of coming over on a social call, which really kind of makes me laugh. I honestly, no, to me, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, this the image that I actually got in my head was, you know, in, is it in Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one in the Black Pearl, the Curse of the Black Pearl, when the two silly pirates i can never remember their names the one with the eye that pops out all the time yeah um the two guys they are like dressed up as women and (laughs) then like the moon comes out and then they look like Uh skeletons i kind of think about that as if they're coming over like oh we're gonna have a party or whatever (laughs) and then it's like fuck you we're pirates um so basically pirates of the caribbean (laughs) i know i know such a classic iconic um so whenever they get on board the milton it's not until they draw their pistols and cutlasses um as ashen says quote from under their clothes and they cocked the one and brandished the other and began to curse and swear at us and demand a surrender of ourselves and vessel to them um (laughs) we're going to talk a lot more about ashton but Lowe and his men (laughs) did the same thing to about a dozen other vessels and would bring hostages back to the rebecca for questioning how did they get away with doing that to that many people before word got exactly, around? That's exactly. That's crazy. So one of the interesting things during this period, when he brings guys like Ashton aboard, um, he really like is going to, again, kind of show this. It's like a bit of the real Ned Lowe almost kind of comes to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because this is where he starts questioning these men, and he's very adamant about one aspect of their personal life, and that's their marital status. You know, who are they? Are they married? Do they have a family? And Pam, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, David Cordingly talks about this a bit. So Ashton talks about being interrogated by Ned Lowe, and this is David Cordingly talking at the moment. Um, Brandishing a pistol, Lowe demanded to know whether Ashton and the five men captured with him were married men. None of them replied, which so enraged Lowe that he came up to Ashton, clapped a pistol to his head, and cried out, You dog, why don't you answer me? And swore vehemently that he would shoot Ashton through the head if he did not tell him immediately whether he was married or not. But yeah, that's kind of crazy. And then uh, it turns out that there was this whole thing of kind of Lowe 
I guess, recalling his his connections back in Boston. Yeah. And thinking about um, how his wife had died and accordingly says that his wife who had died had left a young child in Boston that Lowe was so fond of that he would sometimes sit down and weep at the thought of it. And yeah, so like all those like basically Lowe in like, you know, recruiting for his crew was looking for people who didn't have those strong connections to land and to family and marriage and that sort of thing. So um, that was a red flag to him if you were already married. Yeah, in a way that they might be too tempted to return home to those connections. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. even in Ashton's accounts later on, he said that Lowe had, quote, an uneasiness in the sentiments of his mind and the workings of his passions towards a young child he had in Boston, which upon every lucid interval from reveling to drink, he would express a great tenderness for, insomuch that I have often seen him sit down and weep plentifully at the mentioning of it. Yeah. It's, so. I mean, do we do we know how long Ashton was with Lowe? Oh, I'd have to do the math. It's a few months. Okay, so there's actually ample time for him to actually yeah, witness this. Exactly, kind of he would have been around. Him. He was around Lowe quite a lot, pretty much on the Rebecca the entire time. Yeah, that he was under their control. Basically, he had been basically press ganged into Lowe's pirate crew at this point. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about how he escapes as well before we wrap up today's episode. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely not done with Ashton. (laughs) No, we're going to definitely come back to him. So obviously, you know, one of the ways that Lowe is going to get more men into his crew is to, in some cases, press them into service. This was not always a very common thing, actually, for pirates. You know, it was actually more common for them to be voluntary. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Many people probably kind of took one look at Lowe and was like, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> they probably, I mean, the more that he kind of built his reputation, they probably yeah. were like, nah, I don't think I want to work for you voluntarily. Yeah. But even so, we see that Lowe had his men, like many other pirate vessels, they, they signed articles or a code by which they would live and work. And there's actually a full list of these in Eric J. Dolan's book called Black Flags, Blue Waters. And it, he goes into a ton of detail, actually, about Lowe's career. And he gives a full list of the articles that discuss everything from how you know plunder should be distributed, which was often a very important thing uh, to pirate crews, everything about pirate uh, punishments for cowardice and theft, you know, the prohibition of gambling and drunkenness, They laid out compensation details for people who had disabilities, rewards for people who were the first to spot a ship that would become a prize vessel, all sorts of stuff. And so these articles are are really important. I mean, you you found a couple of other examples, too, of how, um, you know, that they were not allowed to draw blood or kill anyone after they had given them quarter unless it was punishment as a criminal. And then that uh, the penalty of death by shooting was for anyone who even spoke about separating or breaking up or attempted to desert. So in this case, he's also very (laughs) serious. They're all very serious about mutiny Mutiny. or the potential of mutiny. Yeah. Um, So that's that's pretty. Not even a whisper of it. Exactly. And that's actually quite um, compared to some other articles that I've looked at. That's pretty intense uh, for a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, will we expect anything less? Exactly. Exactly. And there were also some mentions like Marcus Redeker, who is a, a pirate historian that we come back to quite often. He mentions that there were instances where pirate captains 
who, you know, were kind of the same status of low were often overruled by the votes of their crews. But maybe in this case, the people were just so like scared shitless about everything that they were just like, you know, kind of keeping things in line. I don't know. Yeah. And again, it's all about preserving the pirate way of life is why these codes were put into place. And in this case, Redeker says that when they signed uh, and swore these oaths, basically, um, that they knew that they were with the most direful imprecations that if ever they should find themselves overpowered, they immediately would blow up their ship rather than suffer themselves to be hanged like dogs. So, <laughs> yeah, they're like in it till the end. That's yeah. for sure. They're yeah. hardcore. Yeah. So one of the, a little bit later, one of the fishing schooners that Lowe takes control of after the Rebecca leaves Nova Scotia is called the Fancy. Uh, again, love these ship names, <laughs> the fancy. <laughs> and he took this one as his main vessel, basically his flagship. The prisoners remain on board the Rebecca that he had gathered up in Nova Scotia. So once they add the fancy to their fleet, they sail east all the way to the Azores and the Cape Verde Islands, and then cross the Atlantic back to Brazil and into the Caribbean, and will continue to operate off the Bay of Honduras into the late winter of 1723. This seems to be kind of an area that he is really comfortable with working around the Bay of Honduras, because again, that's where all those logwood cutters were. And it's during that period, that winter, that they plunder 10 vessels and add a few more to his fleet. And his crew in total were about 100 men or so. During this period, it's when we start to see even more of that trademark cruelty becoming apparent. And I think one of the best examples of this is when he comes across this ship, a Portuguese ship, and it's it's not going to turn out too pretty. So I think Pam's going to give us some more information <laughs> on that. Yeah, so David Cordenley talks about this again in um, his book, Under the Black Flag. Kind of the, the details from this incident come from uh, Governor Hart, who was in St. Kitts. He was writing to the Council of Trade and Plantations in London in March 1724, And he describes how Lowe took a Portuguese ship bound home from Brazil, the master of which had hung 11,000 moidors of gold, I guess that's how you say that, in a bag out of the cabin window. And as soon as he was taken by the said Lowe, he cut the rope and let them drop into the sea, for which Lowe cut off the said master's lips, embroiled them before his face, and afterwards murdered the whole crew, being 32 persons." Yikes. So essentially, this um, this master of the ship had um, hung this bag of gold out the window, and when they were being boarded and captured, he was like, "Well, this guy's not getting the gold," and he cuts the rope, and Lo finds out and uh, basically just mutilates this guy. Damn. So <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, this is not going to be the last time he does that either. Yeah. Ugh. Could you imagine like having to watch? Like, have your lips cut off to begin with, and then watch someone cook them in front of you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then and, murder uh, everyone. Yeah. And this Governor Hart guy, he got the, the, the information from Lowe's quartermaster, Nicholas Lewis, um, who had been captured at some okay. point after this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how he kind of knew about what Gosh. had happened. But yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Hi, crew. It's Kim here. I wanted to take a moment to say a huge thank you for listening to this episode of A Barrel of Oranges. This podcast is a labor of love and one that Pam and I look forward to sharing with you every time we craft an episode. You might be wondering, though, how can I support A Barrel of Oranges? First, you can share the love for free on platforms like Apple Podcasts, where you can rate and review the show. 
This makes discoverability easier and more likely that we might become a featured show in the future. Similarly, if you're on Instagram, make sure you're following us at Podcast Oranges and share our new episode post with your friends. Finally, we have a great new way that you can support us financially over on Patreon. For the cost of a coffee every month, you can join our online crew. Each month, our patrons receive exclusive content like videos, mini pods, book recommendations, and more. I tell you, we've got some fun stuff coming up in the next few months and some really cool plans that I think you're going to love. Find out more at patreon.com slash podcast oranges. I mean, during this whole period, Lowe is, I mean, they're going through a lot of different stuff. They, they lose a couple ships. One had been taken, actually the, the crew on board, a prize vessel that they had taken, took over one of the ships and just sailed away. Uh, <laughs> so they're like pirated by the people they had pirated. Um, and another sank when they were trying to careen it, uh, and they just kind of like just filled with water and it just never recovered it. So, you know, there's some stuff like that going on. They're almost captured at one point in time by the British Navy. They endure a massive hurricane off of Brazil mm-hmm. at one point in time. So it's not smooth sailing for them at any point. <laughs> but this also brings us to back to Ashton, because we talked a bit about Ashton earlier. He's the guy that is taken off the Milton I think it's about maybe four or five months later or so that Ashton escapes from the Rebecca in March of 1723. And so supposedly what happens is they're off of the coast of uh, Brazil, kind of that Belize area, the Bay of Honduras, and he convinces some of the crew who were going to be going ashore to gather water to allow him to go along with them. Kind of like, I need some fresh air, you know, stretch my legs kind of thing. I'll go with you, help you out. And so from one account, he eagerly helped the men fill the first few casks of water and then slowly ambled down the beach. This is according to Dolan, I think, if I remember correctly. He slowly ambles down the beach, picking up shells and stones, you know, just kind of beach combing and then, you know, trying to appear as nonchalant as possible. And when he nearly disappears into the tree line, one of the crew is kind of like, hey, dude, what you doing? Where are you going? And he's like, oh, I'm just going to go gather some coconuts. And he's like, okay, whatever. And and I mean, this sounds like something the revenge crew would do. You know, they're just kind (laughs) of like, okay, whatever. And so with no restriction, Ashton basically just plunges into the woods and begins running. But he stays close enough that he can kind of overhear what the rest of the crew are discussing. And they evidently kind of like call out for him a few times. And they're kind of like, oh, should we go after him? They're kind of like, oh, he'll come out eventually if he really wants to. A search party never arrived. They returned back to the main vessels <laughs> and evidently Lowe decides that he's not much of a valuable prisoner because they never try to recapture him. And Ashton yeah. basically becomes a real life Robinson Crusoe. Hmm. And that's why he his account of all of this is so important because the pirates sail away and then Ashton is left to survive on his own for nine months i mean it is really a real deal this guy really just went through the ringer didn't he (laughs) exactly i mean and and what happens in his story again kind of to get into the literature stuff here robinson crusoe the novel Mm. by daniel defoe is published in 1719 that's only what four years before this happens so the public consciousness you know the readerly public in england we're just so like eating, they're, they're just eating like, up these stories. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. Yeah, because it's kind of almost like a sensationalized thing because yeah. it was already in the kind of the public consciousness by that point. Exactly. And it's like, oh, it's a real life Robinson Crusoe. Like, yeah. And so he's eventually rescued by um, a group of kind of, again, ragtag. Some of them are Scottish. Some of them are Spanish, I think, different individuals. And eventually when he returns to society, he becomes a celebrity for this experience and publishes an entire account of his ordeals in 1725. So it's really thanks to to Ashton that we have so much firsthand information about Ned Lowe and his cruelties and this whole experience because he writes the sensationalized account in a way that, you know, would given the the um the appetite that a lot of the English speaking reading public had for adventure stories and travel logs and things like that, they would have absolutely loved this. Yeah, and like kind of like another thing to kind of go off the Robinson Crusoe thing too. There was another book published in 1726 that's called The Four Years' Voyages of Captain George Roberts. And this um, book includes a lengthy account of Roberts' experiences while he was a pr- also a prisoner of Ned Lowe or Edward Lowe. And this particular account is believed to have been written by Daniel Defoe himself and may even be completely fiction. But it's super, super kind of like detailed and pretty authentic. Um, so there's, you know, a theory that it's based off of, you know, interviews with, you know, former pirates or based on some sort of real life events. Yeah. Um, so it could even be something that's kind of like based off of Ashton's account. Yeah, even. that's true. Um, yeah. You know, if you kind of think about it. So I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, what it seems like a little bit that I've dug into about, Defoe is that a lot of people thought for a while that he was actually the real writer of the Captain Charles Johnston to mm-hmm. Johnson yeah. stuff, um, the general history. That's pretty much been disproven by most literary scholars and most people who are familiar with Defoe. We might get into that on an episode in future in more detail. But Defoe obviously was someone who, in his writings about piracy, was very um, generous with his uh, with his. Um, uh, admiration, I think, for piracy, uh, very anti-establishment in his own mm-hmm. right. So I think a lot of the things he admired pirates quite a lot, and so it doesn't surprise me that he would be writing stuff like this. And yeah. you know, even if it was something that he just generated, you know, f- fiction-wise, and and generated, you know, something based on Ashton and other people's experiences. Yeah, yeah. I think he was and, like really intrigued by that. Yeah, and like supposedly this Roberts character, um, when he was captured by Lowe, he was like, you know, he ate and drank with the captain. He was given a hammock. He was told he could come and go as he pleased. Um, you know, so I, that would kind of be in line yeah. with the whole idea of kind of having this positive outlook on, yeah. on pirates. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on the flip side of that, um, this Roberts, as well as Philip Ashton, the real life person that is more confirmed, I guess. Um, They were both horrified by quote unquote uncouth behavior (laughs) um, of Lowe and his pirate crew um, while they were eating and carousing. So um, there's, there's a great quote um, from Ashton on this. He said, I soon found that any death was preferable to being linked with such a vile crew of miscreants to whom it was a sport to do mischief 
where prodigious drinking, monstrous cursing and swearing, hideous blasphemies, and open defiance of heaven and contempt of hell itself was the constant employment, unless when sleep something abated the noise and revelings. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He he even went on to to talk about... um, you know, Lowe and his crew, uh, they were mad, roaring, and mischievous. They mm. were a perpetual din of madness. Um, Ashton thanked God for saving me from the rage of the pirates. Um, yeah. He calls Ned Lowe's crew devils incarnate who gave you the liveliest picture of hell. Nice. <laughs> so, like, nice. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, this is all colored as well by his own experiences, you know, being yanked from his own lifestyle and everything. But honestly, like, I think from what we also hear in other aspects about Lowe, it's it's pretty spot on, it seems. I mean, essentially, as they head out of the Caribbean in 1723, they continue their rampage all the way up to Virginia, even joining up with George Lothar again for a bit. Uh, it's also here that Lowe acquires a new flagship called the the Fortune. It's a sloop, and it had 10 guns and already had 70 men aboard. Um, and his consort, the sloop called the Ranger, had eight guns and about 50 men on board. It was captained by former quartermaster Charles Harris. And it's supposedly, I mean, there's even another estimate. David Quarterly actually thinks that the Fortune had 28 guns and a crew of 80 mm. men. This could have been yeah. maybe they maybe they upped the the armaments at some point in time. But yeah, it's a pretty big. I was a little, con- pretty I was a little confused by that yeah. reading that and then seeing other figures and different accounts. So yeah, that would make so, sense maybe that they kind of beefed it up a little bit. <laughs> right, and that we see that happening with when when Edward Teach gets hold of the. Um, uh, what becomes the Queen Anne's Revenge and all that. They're adding guns. They're adding that kind of stuff uh, over time. And just to kind of cap this little bit off before we talk about a couple of other encounters they have, I love this quote again. Um, this one is from just a historian uh, who mentions that Lowe and his crew, you're talking about kind of their demeanor and so forth, that danger lurked in their very smiles. <laughs> So there were a lot of different instances in which Lowe is recorded having taken some pretty severe steps with the captains of ships that he took and captured. Um, and again, you know, kind of going back to the the master of that Portuguese vessel, um, we're going to see some uh, forced cannibalism here. So, um, oh <laughs> and some other things uh, coming up. So if you... Uh, if that's not something you really want to hear about, you might want to skip ahead a little while. But um, they captured one ship called the Amsterdam that had about 150 pounds of silver and gold on board, uh, which doesn't seem like a lot, but today that would be a pretty substantial amount. And the ship's captain uh, named John Welland was repeatedly slashed and stabbed during this uh, time. His right ear was cut off and he was thrown below decks where he was attended by a doctor that Lowe had previously press gang to join his crew. Um, that's actually one of the people that we often see press gang the most into a pirate crew as a doctor or people who had some kind of specialized skill because they were like really necessary on board these vessels. According yeah. to these accounts, the doctor really saved his life. Um, and after Lowe had plundered the Amsterdam for its money and basically its supply of beef, he sank it and Wellen and the rest of the crew were allowed to leave on another vessel. Interesting that he's like, you can take this other vessel and go off, but he like wouldn't let them have their own vessel back for some reason. 
He's like, this one's better. I'll keep this one. You can take this shitty one. Well, he didn't even keep one. that one. He sank it. That's what's uh, even crazier to oh, me. Oh, that's right. So it's that's like, right. you know, yeah. almost like a retribution kind of thing. Who knows? I don't know. But there's another encounter um, in June of 1723 off of New Jersey with an actual British naval warship called the HMS Greyhound. And there is a, a very large battle that takes place between the Greyhound and Lowe's ships, the Fortune and the Ranger. And it's kind of east of Long Island. It lasts for more than eight hours, you found out, right, Pam? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I, one thing that, that um, Lowe was also very notorious for was using what we call the ruse de guerre, which is, it's like, you know, during wartime, often flying false flags. So flying the flags of a different nation or something like that to confuse or lure people in. And we see that happening quite often. Both of the pirate ships under Lowe's command hoisted the black flag. And then when the warship showed no sign of surrender, they hoisted the red flags. And what does that mean? No quarter. Everybody's going to die. So yep. it's not looking too good for the HMS Greyhound. But after a long time... Uh, of a lot of back and <laughs> forth and everything, we see that the Greyhound's crew was eventually able to shoot down the mainsail of the Ranger with grape shot. Yeah. It took a lot of grape shot, I would think, to do that, right? To bring Probably. down the sails. Basically, what it sounded like is the Greyhound was eventually able to sail in between okay. the other two ships and mm. started shooting grape shot at both of them. Oh, and that's when yeah. they took the, the mainsail down, gotcha. or the mainmast or whatever. Yeah of the ranger and then that's you know gotcha yeah, yeah. so they take down the ranger and then low who again to me this is kind of cowardly uh but he flees with the fortune he's like yeah. good luck yeah. guys i'm out of here and he leaves <laughs> um his fleet had really been no match for the greyhound he did eventually get co convinced by his crew to order a retreat um and that led to a really long uh, chase before this battle had even broken out. And even after the Ranger surrendered, which was captained by, by Harris, um, the Greyhound's commander really, I mean, he was so excited because he thought he had captured Ned Lowe. He was like, I've got Lowe, he's on the Ranger and everything. And then he gets on there and they start like processing these guys, these prisoners who have left behind. And he realizes that Lowe has escaped. Um, <laughs> and even after taking like, I mean, hours to, to, to subdue these prisoners and, and you know, get everything ready to like take the Ranger in um, to, you know, basically have a trial and all of that. Um, they could still see the fortune off in the distance and supposedly mm. uh, the, the commander of the Greyhound tries to track her down for a while before eventually losing sight of the fortune. So uh, Lowe lives to fight another day. Um, yeah. Peter Earl calls him the great escaper and some say the great <laughs> coward who deserted his consort while we then see his uh, remaining crew, Charles Harris, his crew, from the ranger all of them are captured put on trial in newport rhode island in july of 1723 and most of them are hanged as a result of that um, 36 men in total were accused of piracy eight of whom were acquitted it's possible that some of those men who are acquitted were those who had been pressed into service that mm -hmm. often happens it seems with these pirate trials 28 are sentenced outright to death and two were later reprieved and pardoned um, and one of these guys was asked to account for how many ships that Lowe had taken 
since just the beginning of 1723. So up until about the summertime. And he said that they had taken 45 ships just in about a six month period. So those are busy guys. Essentially kind of from here on, it's kind of another turning point. It seems for Lowe. Um, Eric Dolan says that this was something that actually fueled Lowe's sadism into the next period. Um, and, and this is where things again, get kind of nasty here. So in one instance, they capture a Nantucket whaler and then torture its captain. His name was Nathan Skiff by whipping him about the deck and then cutting off both his ears. They made a game and sport of the poor man And then Lowe claimed that he was a good master and would allow him a, quote, easy death and promptly shot him through the head. So after basically just like playing with the guy, like a cat would play with a mouse, then they're just like torturing him. Okay, you're done. Yeah. On two other vessels that were captured out of Plymouth, Massachusetts, one captain was scalped and had his chest cut open to remove his heart which the pirates then roasted and ordered the captured crew to eat. So here's that forced cannibalism. I'm like, this is really messed up stuff. The other vessel's captain was slashed and mauled before his ears were cut off. This seems to be the trademark for Lowe, actually, is to cut off people's Mm -hmm. ears. But this guy's ears were cut off, roasted, and then fed back to him. And his injuries were so horrific that he died shortly thereafter. He just didn't survive. Yeah, I mean, he probably went into shock. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, I mean, and pretty much from here going on until later 1723, they capture another ship called the Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've had the happy delivery, the fancy, the Merry Christmas, you name it. Um, they capture this ship off of Nova Scotia and sail again for the Azores all the way east towards Africa Um, even heading as far as Sierra Leone before heading back to the Caribbean. And it's over this 20-month period, um, kind of that last known 20 months of Lowe's career, that he took at least 140 merchant vessels as prizes. So I think this is where we see that inspiration in Our Flag Means Death for Ned Lowe to have like this, what was like 88 or something like that, 88 ships or something like that. 89 consecutive raids or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. so very impressive, um, but certainly, uh, yeah, off the charts in a number of other ways, yeah. As we head into the spring of 1724, all of a sudden, Edward Lowe drops off the historical record. And we have a lot of question marks about what actually happened to this dude. We've got a couple of different possibilities here. In one story, Lowe had quarreled with his quartermaster and killed him in his sleep. And then the rest of Lowe's crew finds out about this and actually forced Lowe to get into a small boat with a few other men who maybe were still loyal to Lowe and they just set him adrift. And supposedly this vessel gets captured by a French vessel who then puts Lowe and his men on trial in Santa Domingo and hangs them there. This is the published story that Captain Charles Johnson puts into the general history of pirates. So that's one that we often see popping up quite often in you know, the stories that we know about Lowe. There's some other options though. Another said that Lowe's barbarity had led his crew to put him on board another sloop to banish him uh, from the crew, essentially, basically a mutiny. 
and leave him to an unknown fate. Uh, another says that Lowe was taken in by pirates who burned his sloop and left him and his men on a deserted island. And then another case, we have a biographer that said that men on board the naval vessel, the HMS Diamond, reported encounter encountering a periauger, which is basically a type of canoe, that had nine men on board in March of 1726. So this is almost two years later. And recognized that one of the men was Ned Lowe. So was he still alive two years later? The Diamond had lost her canoe and could not give chase to kind of figure out, you know, what's going on in this case. And so it might have left, left kind of Ned Lowe and these other men to their fate near a place called Roatan. Um, and it's possible that he might have been killed by the indigenous peoples there known as the Mosquitoes. There is one other story that's really the outlier here. Again, most people think he probably died sometime between 1724 and 1726. But one outlier is that he was still alive in 1739. A man who had been identified as, quote, the famous Ned Lowe, formerly well-known here for his piracies, was spotted while escaping a Spanish fort at Portobello. And this, uh, supposedly, he had been among some of the, the gun crews there at the fort when the city was attacked by British forces during the War of Jenkins' Ear. Also kind of funny, in a way, that it's the War <laughs> of Jenkins' Ear, which literally was started because of a guy named Jenkins getting his ear shot off. We'll talk about that in the future, maybe. But yeah, Ned Lowe, like, cutting exactly. ears off. And David Jenkins being the showrunner. <laughs> right, of right exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we don't know what happened to this guy, but yeah. he probably didn't have the best end, you know? Yeah. Um, I, lo I love the theory. I think it was kind of like Charles Johnson that was like, yeah, his crew was so, like, fed up with his barbarity yeah. that they just put him in a dinghy and didn't give him any provisions exactly. or anything. Or they're just like, fuck off, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Which luck. is kind of, you know, what happens in OFMD yeah. as well, like, with the whole mutiny situation. So, yeah. yeah. I mean... Ned Lowe's character in OFMD, you know, I think the thing that really ends up working out uh, against him is the fact that his crew hated him so much and, you know, felt so yeah. belittled by him and so demeaned and everything. And so, you know, we see that Steed is able to use that in a way to, again, turn poison into positivity and, mm -hmm. uh, and create uh, something different out of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Took very little prompting from, from Steed to get them to actually mutiny yeah, against Ned Lowe. Exactly. Just kind of plant <laughs> the like, little seed. They're like, we're set up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one thing, like, we, we haven't said outright, obviously, if you've been kind of paying attention to dates that we've been talking about, is that in terms of his pirating career, Ned Lowe or Edward Lowe was not a contemporary of Steed Bonnet and Edward Teach. Uh, both of them would have died by this point in time, uh, executed uh, or killed in battle in 1718. So, yeah, yeah. No, Lowe gets his his start about three years later. So a good a good bit away from that. I mean, in terms of thinking about how long these careers were, pirate careers only lasted about two or three years at most uh, before some kind of uh, bad end. And so uh, <laughs> Lowe did not get to interact with Bonnet and Teach. But I love how he gets brought into the OFMD story. Yeah, I think it's a good fit, you know, even though they weren't contemporaries. Um, yeah. <laughs> One of the other really funny things, too, we think about how, um, you know, the whole scene plays out when they're having Calypso's birthday party and everything. And, 
you know, they're attempting to torture the crew of the revenge and, and Ed and Steed and everything. And, you know, it's very cartoonish on the one hand, (laughs) very, very cartoonish compared to what we know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not cutting off appendages or anything. They're just like using these like, yeah, like, you know, clamps and like tightening them like around people's like heads and like, they're like stretching Ed out on like, I don't know what like you a rack, even call yeah, it. A medieval rack, like a rack of some basically. sort. Yeah. <laughs> Literally makes um, me think of Muppet Treasure Island kind of situation with like yeah. gongs that will come back to that in the future. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so much funny stuff there. But yeah, I mean like, and one of the things that, that also um, we don't get to see it as much because of just the way that they had to edit some things down. But uh, according to Samba Shoot, who plays Roach, Roach was a huge fan of Ned Lowe and was like yeah. fangirling <laughs> over him. And there were some like little bits that they had in the the scene there where he was kind of like, yeah, really excited to kind of meet Ned Lowe and everything and kind of yeah. enjoying the torture. You might say you kind of get a little bit of that with what we actually see in the episode too. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Roach <laughs> was definitely very excited. Um, there's actually, there's a good um, post on Samba's Instagram. Yeah. I can't remember if it's like, the post that kind of like shouts out the actor that played um, Ned Lowe or if it was a separate post, but he actually um, put in the, that, that outtake or that cut scene right? Um, where he was like, Oh, Ned Lowe, I'm such a big fan. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to remember, I was like, Oh, somebody's like, Oh, you shit roach or something. I don't remember that. Like all the crew were like, really dude? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like why? This guy's going to kill us. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. it's it really funny. funny though. But you know, even thinking about Bronson Pinchot, who plays Ned Lowe, you know, thinking about how he got into character, I mean, he took it a next level as well because mm. I mean, I didn't really notice it the first time around watching, but Pam was like, Oh my gosh, did you see? You know, that actually he when he was kind of doing his makeup and everything, put like activated charcoal like in his teeth and in his nostrils yeah. and stuff to kind of like it's like he was like rotting on the inside. Yeah. Like that was what he said on Twitter or something. Yeah, like that kind of like between takes, he would just like reapply ugh. and like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like internal. Which I think is like a particularly like unhinged thing to do <laughs> for like the cat character that I, you're playing. <laughs> I think it's fantastic because it is. Yeah, you think about that idea of like rotting from the inside out. I mean, mm. this guy was rotten to his core. Yeah. 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 Ugh. <laughs> yeah. And just to wrap up, I'm going to go back to Charles Elms again in the Pirate's Own Book. And this is what he has to say, kind of wrapping up about Lowe and his crimes. He said, Lowe proceeded in his villainous career with two fatal success. Unsatisfied with satiating their avarice and walking the common path of wickedness, those inhuman wretches, like to Satan himself, made mischief their sport cruelty their delight, and the ruin and murder of their fellow men their constant employment. Of all the piratical crews belonging to the English nation, none ever equal low in barbarity. Their mirth and their anger had the same effect. They murdered a man from good humor as well as from anger and passion. Their ferocious disposition seemed only to delight in cries, groans, and lamentation. Ooh, what a lot to get into so many, this episode. Yeah, So many good quotes yes. about Edward Lowe. I mean, obviously, there's some hyperbole in some of these. 
they really kind of push that like agenda of wanting to show these pirates mm. as being the worst of the worst. But yeah, I think we can agree, agree that Lo was, yeah, pretty bad dude. Yeah. Yeah. The baddest of them all. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is our first episode done and dusted of 2024. I'm so excited about this new season. Yeah. I think we've got a lot to work with. Yeah. So stick with us. We have so much more fun ahead of us. Whatever happens with the larger Our Flag Means Death world at this point in time, we hope that you'll stick with us, be a part of the crew, and as always, stay pistol-proof. Stay pistol-proof, friends. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Electric Kelpie Media. All research was conducted by Kimberly Sherman and Pam Sherman. Find us online at electrickelpymedia.com slash oranges and on social media at podcast oranges. Oh, 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 oh,